Come all welcome home. You've picked a really great day to be in church. We've got four weeks until we get to Ash Wednesday, and in preparation of that, um, we're going to be looking specifically at some healings that Jesus performs in the Gospels. If you were to go through all four of the Gospels and you were to unpack every healing, there would be 26 healings that are captured in the Gospels. That doesn't mean that's all he did, but those are the ones they wrote about. And so we don't have time to go through all 26 in the next four weeks, but we are going to focus on some specific ones. And today in particular is one that's really near and dear to my heart because it's been a challenge for me to understand for much of my life. For those of you that have known me, I'm one of the pastors that helped to plant this church. And 11 years ago when we did that, God really put forth this vision of how can we reach people that won't set foot in a traditional church setting. And my thought was, if people could know Jesus the way I know Jesus, to experience him the way I've experienced him, how could they turn away from something so great? Because our God is such an inviting God and such a loving God, and we're going to see a piece of that today in the scriptures. But as we've grown as a church and we continually try to reach new people, something interesting happened to me on this journey. And it's one day I woke up and found myself struggling with a panic attack. And all of a sudden, I was experiencing what was diagnosed as depression. Now, I've never had those in my life, and so this was a new experience altogether. And it put me in the last three or four years now on my own kind of extended spiritual journey where God is bringing healing into my own life mentally and emotionally. Now what's interesting about this is it's not something that's always easy to talk about, not because of just the embarrassment or, or the struggle, but sometimes it's hard to put words behind some of these feelings or situations or, or even the process. And so I'm going to do my best to not only share with you a little bit about my life, but more importantly share with you about this Jesus who is willing to come and meet us wherever we are. And so in the midst of this journey, I have experienced interesting aspects of his healing, and I hope that you will too. And over the next four weeks, as we explore some of these situations of Jesus's healings, I'm hoping that this will become something that will happen in your own life. So before we go any farther today, let's stop and just invite Christ into this moment, because I can't wait to see what he has in store for us. Lord Jesus, as we have gathered here today, my prayer is that you would come and meet with us individually. You are certainly a God who meets in community, but you're also a God who meets individually. And as you look at each one of us, there is nothing that would hold back your love for us. That God, even though we might not be everything that we want to be, you still love us for who we are and where we're at. But you're also a God who isn't willing simply to leave us there because you're a God of new life. And so, Father, as we learn what it is to live into the resurrection, to experience healing and wholeness. May we experience the living God in our own lives, that our hearts and our minds might not simply be changed, but healed and renewed. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. When I was first starting out as a, uh, I guess, a theologian at a young age, I was curious about who God was. And I'll never forget uh, getting my first third grade Bible, which was absolutely useless. It was full of big words and had a couple hand-drawn pictures here and there, but it was, awesome. it was terrible. And it wasn't until my mother, bless her heart, came and provided me a, my first study Bible. 
And I'll never forget the first time I was able to read scripture, not understand it, but go down into the commentary and all of a sudden it's like a veil had been lifted and I started to understand things that I had heard growing up in church but I never could really put together. And part of this journey and this excitement put me on this incredible path to wanting to become a pastor. And the goal was if I could show people the incredibleness of who God is and how the scriptures reveal him and who he is, that perhaps their lives would be changed forever. And so with that in mind, I want to share with you a scripture verse that truly began to open up my mind that will help set the grounding for where we're headed today. And it begins in the Gospel of John. And if you don't know this, every gospel is written, all four are written to a specific group of people. Now, each one can speak to any number of people, but they're written specifically to a group of people. And John is one that is written specifically to the Gentiles that have now flooded all of what is known as Jerusalem. As the Romans have come through and conquered the area, they've brought in the Greco-Roman thoughts and the Hellenization, which means the Greek traditions and gods and all sorts of things have now been intermixed. And as John is trying to explain this incredible reality of God not willing to just leave us where we're at, but to come and enter into our lives, to enter into history and reveal himself through his son Jesus, to bring us healing and wholeness, and then to invite us back into the family of God. He does so in a way that would make sense if you were a Roman or a a Greek. And so he opens his gospel with these words, in the beginning was the word. And when he says that very phrase, the word, what he's talking about is this incredible thought process that permeated all of Roman thought and all of Greek thought, which is there's some unknown force in the universe that is at work in and around us. And that force is doing things that are beyond our understanding. That force is what brought life into reality. That force is what makes things happen in and around us, but we don't know what it is. And so here John is saying, look, there's a way to know that force that it's more than just a force. It's a living God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. So John's saying all those things that we see and recognize, but we can't fully wrap our minds around, I'm going to reveal him to you today. And so his entire gospel is about revealing who this person of Jesus is, the very son of God, God incarnate or in flesh, coming to disrupt the world as we know it in order to set it right and to bring healing and wholeness to each of us so that we know that we are sons and daughters of the living God invited and adopted into his family. Now, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip open to chapter 5, and we're going to start our time today taking a look at a specific verse that begins there. Now, sometime later, so the story picks up kind of in the midst of what's happening. Now, Jews from all over the known world have come together to Jerusalem, and they would come about five times a year to celebrate different specific holidays, these great feasts and festivals and opportunities to come and experience the temple and to bring their sacrifices and offerings to God. So sometimes later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of these Jewish feasts or festivals. Now there in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate was a pool, which in Aramaic is called Beth Esada. That's House of Divine Mercy or House of Grace. And which is surrounded by five covered colonnades and Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie under the colonnades, 
the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And they would do that for a specific purpose. Now, I always think it's interesting when we read a story in the Bible and there happens to be some sort of archaeological evidence that helps to make it a little bit more real. And so if you take a look, this is actually where the pools are. Now, if you look closely down below at all the rubble, it kind of looks like a church, and you would be right. Very much it looks like a church because somewhere in the 19th century, there was a man named uh, Colonel Shrek who found this particular site, and it was right next to a church that was already there, St. Anne Church. And off to the northwest corner, he was doing some ex excavating, and he said, this is where that pool of Vesada is. But he wasn't able to dig down deep enough at the time, and he wasn't able to explore it. And so after many years go by, around 1964, a group comes in, and they're now allowed to excavate. And as they go deeper, they find that not only is there a church, a Byzantine church made by the Crusaders on top of this holy spot to mark it, but underneath, in the middle of the church, as they dug up the floor, they found the pool. Now, what's interesting is for years, people had read this scripture and they said, okay, there's five sides that must look like a pentagram, but, but it doesn't. It actually is a giant rectangle with a wall in between. And so if you add up all the walls, there's five walls, which is exactly what John is describing. And so it looks something like this to the side and probably something like this if we were to get up close. And the reason I want to show this to you is because this is an incredible backdrop to help fill in pieces of the story that we just can't grasp as English speakers. And as people that grew up here in the United States, we, we've missed a huge part of it. But let me point out something really important before we go any farther, and I'm going to go back one slide. Now, do you see Bethsaida off to the, it'd be my right, your left, and it's the little red uh, rectangles. And way over on the other side, you'll see the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is where people would come to gather and they would actually enter into those courts and then inside those courts is the temple itself. And so this is where the holy like, heart of Jerusalem is, the city of God where people would come to experience and encounter the living God. But outside the city is this pool. And this is important because the Gospel of John will talk about two specific healings that happen around pools, which are unique to its Gospel. And the first one we're going to see is this one by Bethsaida. And the second one is the pool of Siloam, which is interesting because that's more of a Jewish pool, where this pool is more likely a Greco-Roman pool. Now, why this is confusing for many scholars and people is for years, we often thought that this was a, a mikvah. This was a place where Jews would come and they would baptize themselves to cleanse themselves and prepare themselves for a holy encounter with God. You see this in the Gospels when John is baptizing in the River Jordan and Jesus shows up and he's baptized. He's preparing people for the coming of God. Now, as Christians, we have taken that and we've moved it to the next level and we said we're not simply preparing for the coming of God. We're recognizing the death and the resurrection and the new life given to us in God. And so as we go under the waters, we recognize the death of our old life. As we come out of the waters, we recognize our life, our new life in Christ. And so we're celebrating what is happening and also the future to come. But what's interesting here is this pool is outside of Jerusalem. And originally, this pool was probably a place where water flowed in and the priests were able to gather water and they would use it in their daily operations of the temple. But years go by and as the temple is destroyed and rebuilt, destroyed and rebuilt, sometime around Jesus' time, this particular thing pops up. And this is part of what's called Hellenization. 
It's where the Roman Empire has now come in and taken over Jerusalem, and they've put things in there that better represent the greater world in which they've conquered. And so this pool is not a Jewish pool by any stretch of the imagination. It's most likely a Greco-Roman pool, but it has a very significant piece, and I want to share with you what that is. I'm going to make sure I get this guy's name right. It's Asclepius. Asclepius. I know, it sounds crazy, isn't it? It's a naked man holding a stick with a snake on it. And he happens to be one of the Greco-Roman gods that uh, came from Apollos. Now, Apollos ends up finding this woman that he falls in love with. Uh, they make a baby together. And as um, he finds her unfaithful, she's murdered. And as she's put on a bed to be burned, he realizes she is with child. And so Apollos, as the history goes, cuts her open and performs the first C-section and pulls out this child, which becomes this god here. Now, this is important because this is a hero and a god of medicine in ancient Greek religion and mythology. Now, there's more to him than just that. According to the legend in return for some kindness rendered by Aclepius, a snake licked Aclepius' ear clean and taught him the secret knowledge of health and medicine. To the Greeks, snakes were sacred beings of wisdom, healing, and resurrection. Asclepius bore a rod wreathed with a snake which became associated with healing. Now, you have seen this image almost every day of your life if you travel around or if you're in any sort of doctor office or hospital. And we see the idea of the snake around the staff. And what's interesting to me is that this particular Greek god also was known for his daughters. And if you take a look at their names, you'll probably pick out some interesting words that have been translated into English that we use today in the medical field. It's kind of fascinating. Now, the reason we're pointing this out is because we would miss this if we just read the story straight through. But that particular pool we're looking at at Bethsaida is probably a pool that was designed and created as one of the 400 places people could go in the Greco-Roman world to worship this particular god. And the reason they would go there is this is the god of medicine, health, and healing. And so they would go there waiting to touch the waters in, in hopes to be healed. So you can understand when John opens this and he says in this promenade of Bethsaida are all these people who are blind, lame, and sick who have gathered there. And they wait there day after day. Now this is interesting to me. Now, verse 4 in your Bibles, if you have a Bible, you'll notice it might have verse 4 and then there might be nothing. And then it'll jump to 5. And there's a reason for this. As they look at the transcripts of scriptures that have been passed down from generation to generation, when they look at some of the most original ones we have on record, they find that what is found in verse 4 in our English Bibles is often omitted. It's not there. Which means people later in life, as they're trying to understand these scriptures, wrote in something to help us better understand. And so what they write in here is the local legend of the pool. Okay. So here's the local legend of the pool and why everybody's gathered around it. They're waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred up the waters. Whoever then jumped in first after the stirring up of waters stepped in and was made well from whatever disease in which they were afflicted. Now, this is the local tale. But it's such a tale that there are over 400 of these specific places built all over the Greco-Roman Empire. 
where people would come. Now, it was tradition that as people went away on a long trip to some other place, maybe even another country, they would come back and they would make sure to dip in these pools to wash off and find cleansing that they didn't bring anything back with them. Interesting, isn't it? So take a look at these pools. Now, here's what I find interesting. You can tell that the early Christians were trying to explain this to the next generation and the next generation because they used the term, they waited for an angel to come and stir the pool. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, there wouldn't be an angel. What's interesting and what typically happened is, do you notice how one is higher than the other? The water naturally flowed into the higher pool. And then the priests, once a day, would come and they would turn the valves and they would let the water flow from the top pool into the bottom and it would flush out all the yucky water and that's how they kept the pools clean. Well, that gurgling and bubbling of the pipes meeting and the water flowing, people turned into a local story about healing. That's when something stirred the water and that's when we jumped in. Now, the reason we see the word angel in there is because guess who also started to believe this wives' tale? The local Jews. And so here they are outside the temple of God, worshiping God, looking at God for all their needs, but yet they're still sneaking off to this temple in order to find healing and wholeness in hopes that maybe this Greco-Roman God would also heal them of whatever it is they're struggling with. And so it gets passed down from generation to generation that, oh, well, you know, to kind of make it a little easier, it's an angel stirs the water as if God's involved. But that wouldn't have been part of the story of that day and time. People would have known full well that this was a place you went to worship a very specific Greco-Roman God in hopes that you might receive healing and wholeness yourself. So, let's jump back into the story. Now, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years, so we don't know exactly what his ailment is, but he doesn't function very well. 38 years. So we don't know if he was born that way. We don't know if something happened to him. But for 38 years, he has struggled with whatever he struggled with, and he has sat by this pool in hopes to find healing. Now, what I love about this is this is probably a pagan place with pagan people and Jewish people all gathered together. And guess who shows up? Jesus. I mean, the one person you would think that would never set foot in some sort of pagan place is the very Son of God. And the reason I love this is that it shows me that God is not afraid to meet us where we're at. And so that particular day, Jesus is taking his disciples to this pagan pool, and you can just imagine the group behind him going, oh, God, Jesus, you know better. We, we, don't, we don't go to that pool, man. That, that's not the place for us. And Jesus is saying it is today. So when Jesus saw this particular man who'd been an invalid for 38 years, saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, Jesus asked him this question. Do you want to get well? It almost sounds like a silly question. I mean, 38 years he's laid by this pool hoping for health. I mean, Jesus, duh. But see, Jesus never asks a question that doesn't have a deeper meaning. And if you watch closely in the Gospels, Jesus never answers the question that's given him. He answers the question under the question, the one that gets to the heart of the issue. And so when he says, do you want to get well, he says, do you want to experience salvation from what you're dealing with? 
Now, what I love about this question is that Jesus is not asking him a question of will, like, like, do you want to will yourself better? He's asking him a question of opportunity. Do you want to take advantage of a special moment right now? Do you want to get well? Now, the man is so confused. He, he's not really sure, like, who is this clown and, and what is he talking about? And so he answers him, sir, look, I have no one else to help me into the pool because I'm an invalid. When the water stirred, so while I'm trying to get in, someone else usually jumps in ahead of me, and that's why I'm in this state. I'm never able to get to the pool first. Somebody always cuts me off. I love this idea of giving an excuse because if you're a human being, you've probably heard somebody give you an excuse for something that is so dumb. And if you've listened to yourself long enough, you've probably heard the same excuses out of your own mouth, because I know I have. And so what happens here is this man is saying, look, obviously I want healing. I've been here 38 years. Every time I get ready to jump in, someone beats me to the punch. So yes, I want to get healed. But Jesus isn't talking about just his body. He's not talking about just getting rid of the ailment. He's talking about something totally radical. He's talking about new life. So let's see what happens next. So Jesus replies to him or says to him, get up. Now, get up in English is actually the same word we would use in the New Testament for resurrection. So it's like Jesus is saying, come alive. Pick up your mat and walk. Now, the mat is probably what he's been laying on. It's like a bed. Sometimes they translate it as pallet, but he picks it up, and at once the man was cured. And what I love about this is when Jesus says, get up, he's saying, resurrect into new life. And when he says, pick up your pallet or pick up your mattress or your bed, what Jesus is saying is, here's the permanency of what I'm offering you. You won't need that anymore. This is so radical. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Now, I, I can't even imagine what this scene would have looked like. You know, the disciples are, are just like me. They're going, Jesus, look, we should not be here. This is not the place for us. The temple's over here. You, you've hung a right. We need to go left. I mean, this is all screwed up. Oh, no, now you're talking to an invalid guy. And, you know, in our culture, if you hang out with invalids, you become invalids. We've got to be really careful here. We don't want to contract anything he has. And now we're in a place filled with people like that. Jesus, this is a bad idea. And Jesus doesn't even answer him. He just simply walks in and this scene unfolds. And as this man stands up, he, he has to be so shocked because he's been wrestling for 38 years. Some of us have been wrestling with things for, for maybe a few years. Maybe it's 38 years. Maybe it's longer. And we're looking and putting our hopes in different things, trying to find that one thing that's going to help us. But when we look around at the created world, we find that the created world just can't provide the things we need to find healing and wholeness but the creator of that world can. What I love about this is Jesus is not simply going to use the things in this world to make us better. He's going to make us new. 
And so the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. Now, for those of you that are unaware, we are in kind of a Jewish area that's been, you know, influenced by the Greco-Roman culture. It's been Hellenized. But it's still extremely Jewish, especially with the city of Jerusalem right there and the temple. And so the Sabbath is held as a holy day. And if we look back in Genesis, we realize God created everything in this world in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. And as we look to see the translation of what that really means for us as humanity, what we find is it's not that God was tired. It's simply that he set a precedent saying it's okay and it's necessary for you to find rest. And so one day a week, we're going to stop from all our labor and all of our, our trying to earn money and all of our trying to get ahead, and, and we're going to trust the God who provides all this for us. And so the Jewish culture, in trying to make sense of this, then begins talking amongst themselves. And as they elevate people to these spiritual leadership levels, they begin asking these different spiritual leaders and rabbis, how should we interpret this? And so they say, well, boy, this really gets tricky. So, um, all right, here's what we're going to do. On Sabbath, you can't pick up anything from your house and travel with it. Yeah, that's a good idea. Don't travel with anything from your house. And then someone says, well, you know, but I've got this sick mother that lives down the road, and, and it's, it's farther than I'm allowed to travel on the Sabbath, so I need to see her. What do I do, Rabbi? And he, oh, okay, here's what you do. Get a bag full of your belongings, and you're going to travel the legitimate amount of feet that you're allowed to go on the Sabbath, that you're going to set that bag down, and that bag now represents your place of living. You can then travel another so many feet from there, and you can work your way to your mother's house. That's how we're going to do it, okay? Do you see how confusing this gets? And so what happens is we, we begin creating you know, what we deem as laws or beliefs that then become these permanent aspects of our life and our religion and our understanding of God, even though they're missing the entire point. It's just like when the scriptures reveal what happens when an animal falls down a well on the Sabbath and they say, you get the animal out. In other words, the goal here is life, resurrection, and new life, and honoring God. And so it's open for interpretation, and this is what makes Christianity one of the most dangerous religions in the world, because it's not so cut and dried and so perfectly laid out in what you do and what you don't do. It's given principles. This is why Jesus says, look, all the laws... It boils down to this, love God and love others. If the decision you're making fails on one of those two levels or both, it's a bad idea. But there's a lot of leeway in there because our God is a God of life. And so look what happens next. It's the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders don't like that they see a man walking around with his mat because that's a violation of their personal understanding and belief of the Sabbath. And so they attack him. What's super revealing about this moment is if you're a pagan, that means you're Greco-Roman or from some other country and you have a different belief system and you're in Jerusalem walking around with a mat, do you think a religious leader is going to stop you? No, they don't care. Because they're not going to be able to explain to you what they believe. But if you're a Jew they would stop you. So what we find out is this man at the pool is Jewish. So all of a sudden we have 
a follower of God at a pagan pool looking for his hope in something else. And on that day, God finds him. But it comes at a cost. So on that day, which just took place, was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders began questioning the man, walking around with the mat, violating the Sabbath. He said, who healed you? It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. So the man replies, well, don't blame me. The man who made me well, he said, pick up your mat and walk. You know, you need to go after that guy. And they say, fine, who, who is that man? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. You know, sometimes we think Jesus is sneaky, but really, Jesus is doing something very unique here. He's not drawing attention to himself. In fact, this is the only healing that happens that day. It's as if to say to the man that you're so special to God, God noticed you, met you where you're at, came and brought you healing, and didn't make a big deal about it because it's about you and God. But it doesn't end there. The story ends in this incredible way. Later, Jesus found him at the temple. And he said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. He realized who it was. Now, the part that always confounded me and frustrated me as a, as a young man was this idea of Jesus healing this man, picking him out of a crowd, healing him, disappearing, and then showing up at the temple where the man is, and revealing himself again. And he says these words, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And if you read different scholars, they'll say, oh, well, clearly he had some deep, dark sin that Jesus knew about. Or, or clearly, you know, according to Jewish custom and tradition, that if you had an ailment for 38 years, it's probably because you had some unconfessed sin. Probably not, but that's what they believe. And so they bring in all these false ideas. But What's really happening here is Jesus notices a follower of God. But he's not at the temple. He's at a pagan place of worship hoping to find what God wants to provide. Healing, wholeness, purpose, new life. And so he's at this pool of a particular God that is supposed to provide all those things. But instead he meets the real God who comes and interacts with him in such a way that his life is truly changed forever. Now, for those of you that don't know Jesus the way this man knows Jesus, the way I'm beginning to know Jesus, I want to offer you an opportunity to simply say, Jesus, I want to know you. Come reveal yourself to me. Show me who you are. I dare you to pray that and to see what he's going to do next. Now, at this point, the Gospel of John will take a radical twist. And from this point forward, Jesus becomes the number one person to be gunned down by all the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Because how dare he heal a man on the Sabbath? How dare he not only compare himself to God, but say that he is on equal level with God, unless he is God. 
at the entire point from here on, John will show and demonstrate how Jesus is God. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And even though all of creation sees this, it doesn't recognize Him. That's why we get an opportunity to not only recognize but to invite the opportunity to know the living God of the universe. My friends, this healing story is one that could be each of ours. As God is looking for each and every one of us. I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it one more time and then we're going to close. When I was a little boy having trouble staying in church and constantly finding myself at the beef and bun worshiping with a milkshake, I had a teacher pull me in and I got to be her aide. And that day, I was introduced to one of the most powerful scriptures I, I could ever possibly imagine. And it's the story of the lost sheep, that a shepherd would leave 99 of his flock, the most valuable thing he owns, to go after the one lost one that has wandered away on its own free will in order to bring it back safely. In this story, one of those sheep has wandered away. And God doesn't come to punish, to 